Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. Have you heard that the inaugural Landscape Photography World Awards is now open for entries? Early bird entry is available now at a discounted fee until September 30, 2022. Head to landscapephotographyworldawards.com to find out all the details and how to enter. There's some amazing prizes to be won and I'll be publishing a book and a calendar with the top images at the end of the competition, so there's plenty to look forward to. Entries close on November 30, 2022, so there's plenty of time to get your entry sorted, but if you want to get into the early birds, do it now. I'd also like to thank the judges who have agreed to work with me and be a big part of the awards. Deb Clark, Victoria Hark, Kieran Stone and William Patino. I certainly couldn't make this competition a reality without their support. This week's guest is Vieri Bottazzini. He joins me to talk about his incredible fine art landscape photography. Vieri is an Italian fine art landscape photographer and educator with a personal style rooted in pure photographic craftsmanship. Passionate about the outdoors, Vieri believes in honouring the majestic power of our planet's beauty by creating his iconic images using unadulterated photography only. Through his unique black and white and subtly post-processed colour images, Vieri tells stories about the relationship between nature and mankind, exploring the concepts of time and of the surreal. His fine artwork has been viewed millions of times on social media and featured on leading publications such as Medium Format Magazine, LE Mag, Elements, Landscape Photography Magazine and more. Vieri leads limited attendance workshops in places like Iceland, Scotland, England, the southwest of the USA, Italy, France and Spain where he fully shares his knowledge and his art with his clients. Vieri's diverse and vast portfolio is the culmination of over a decade of passion, love and craftsmanship, of months spent on the road every year, of hundreds of kilometres of hikes and most of all, a lifetime's devotion to the art. Through his work and tutoring, Vieri aims to inspire others to embrace their inner artist and find their own path to self-expression. We discuss his fine art processes, what he sees as success in his photography, along with a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Vieri. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Hi. Hi, Grant. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very well. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, spend some time with me, uh, helping my listeners learn a little bit more about you. Um, so why don't we start with who you are and what you do and why we, we can then talk a little bit more about why you do what you do. All right. So I'm Vieri. I'm an Italian uh, fine art landscape photographer, and um, I've been doing this um, full time as a professional for the last uh, seven years, I guess now. And but I've been photographing all my life before that. So um, and landscape only since 2010. So I got pretty much 12 years of landscape photography under my belt now. Mm -hmm. Before that, I used to do people photography, I did about five years of uh, semi-pro uh, people photography, and I did a lot of street photography and so on, But uh, uh, which I still do, by the way, for fun, for my pleasure. Yep. Uh, but um, 
since 2010, I'm pretty much landscape only. Mm, okay. So I guess one, one of the questions that comes to mind in, in you saying that about the, the portrait, how much do you think the way that you developed your portrait skills has influenced the way that you work in the landscape? Uh, that's a very interesting question. And funny ask, because I always consider myself a portrait photographer uh, portraying the landscape. And uh, so um, I think uh, um, the, the, the aspect that I most brought with me uh, when I switched to landscape photography was that of try to understand the characters that I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you did land, any portrait photography, but if you do, or for those who do, um, yeah, understanding the, the person that you have in front of you is fundamental to me to, to give a, a good representation um, yeah. and interpretation of these people. And for me, it's the same way with the landscape. I'm approaching landscape in the same way. I'm trying to understand the characters that I have in front of me. And um, I'm using a landscape uh, to actually talk about uh, human emotions, human feeling, and tell human stories. Even though I never use human uh, figures or people in my shots ever. Um, but I think uh, that's what I brought from portrait photography, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's fantastic. So what is it that motivated you to shift away from the portraits? I mean, you say you still do them occasionally for fun, but uh, what made you concentrate on landscape as opposed to doing the portraits? Um, well, <clears throat> I used to live in, I live in Italy right now, but I used to live in Istanbul, Turkey, I lived there for 15 years. And uh, you know, Istanbul is a city with like 15 million people, mm-hmm. maybe more. And uh, so I was surrounded by people. I used to photo- photograph people uh, professionally and street photography for fun and so on. And with my wife at some point, uh, we, we thought, okay, we have enough of people. We need to go somewhere when there is no people at all and recharge <laughs> our batteries, you know? Yep. So one July in 2010, we went to the Southwest USA, which is not very smart in retrospect, because it's like <laughs> crazy hot. Yep, very hot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, we went there and we survived and, um, and I fell in love with the landscape and I decided, yeah, this is what I want to do, really. Um, I kind of found my calling in the deserts of the Southwest USA, so to speak. And after that, I, it took me about five years to prepare the transition to full-time landscape photography because mm-hmm. mm, yeah, I didn't want to just uh, jump in the dark. <laughs> so I kind of... Oh, sure. Um, prepare the, the professional side of it. And in 2010, I switched. Um, sorry, in 2015, I switched full-time. Yeah, But in 2010, I got the call. <laughs> and uh, maybe it was the heat. <laughs> it was too hot. And... <laughs> yeah, what, what fried your brain to uh, make you want to be a landscape photographer? Because uh, a, lot, a lot of people don't make money out of it. Um, I guess that, that, that's one of the aspects. How, how did you, you, you mentioned you, you spent five years preparing. How did, how did you go about that preparation? Um, well, yeah, um, I always thought, in my previous life, I was a musician. I was a concert, classical music concert artist, but I also 
taught college and um, for about 15 years. So teaching has always been in my blood. I love teaching. Hmm. So when I moved to photography, to, to uh, landscape photography, I thought, well, if I could teach and do landscape photography, it would be great. Uh, so, um, and obviously um, the print uh, sales and selling editorial and so on. But um, I wanted to focus on, on the educational aspect of it. And so what I did for the first five years, uh, I traveled um, anytime I could to develop my portfolio. And I started to um, contact, obviously, uh, magazines and uh, and uh, you know private clients for um, print sales and so on and mm -hmm. I started um, in imagining the kind of workshop that I wanted to do because uh, yeah. as you know there are a billion workshops uh, out there and I wanted mine to be different and since I always thought one-on-one -on -one because um, when you teach music, I, I was teaching flute and yeah, you teach one-on-one uh, -on -one or in small group settings. So I thought that um, it would be a good idea to do that for the photography as well, rather than having uh, larger groups uh, so that I could concentrate more. And so I, I, I worked on designing a different workshop experience. Um, mm. And uh, it went well. So my, my workshops now have groups of a maximum of three people yep. uh, down to 101. And um, I love doing it. And, and it's, um, it's working well. You know, obviously, COVID put a little, <laughs> a little you know, uh, wrench in the wheels over there. But, uh, but uh, it, it went well in the COVID years as well. So I cannot complain. But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, that's, uh, that's why it took me five years, because I, I really wanted to uh, financially being able to make it work. And, you know, I, I, sorry if I go along a little bit on this. No, one, that's I fine. Think we've, we've got plenty of time. There are, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many people in there that I meet and they tell me, oh, I really want to do what you do. And it's like, yeah, I understand that. But, you know, the, the, the financial part, while it might sound trivial, is actually fundamental. Because if you don't eat, you don't photograph. That's know? right. Yep. So, and so... For me, that part was a very serious thing for me to take care uh, of. And yeah, I was a professor at university. So mm -hmm. leaving that, it was a bit scary in a way. I wanted to be actually sure that this thing could work, you know, before, before just saying, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it, you know. So but I'm, I'm happy I took it slow and, uh, and I went that way. So I might recommend everybody that wants to be a pro in photography to yeah, make a plan, have a business plan and a B plan and a C plan. And, mm -hmm. and a D plan. Don't work <laughs> and a D plan, exactly. All right. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I guess talking about the artistry of photography, have you, I mean, you, you mentioned that you do fine art photography. How do you define fine art photography as opposed to, uh, say, documentary photography? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the million-dollar question. I think everybody is struggling to, to give an answer. Uh, my answer to that, I mean, not just in photography, in the history of art, you know, what is art has been probably one of the most uh, um, Oh, that'll, that'll be argued about question. for millions of years if, if, if the human race <laughs> survives that long. <laughs> uh, for me, um, um, 
I, I think that uh, what makes it a fine art for me is the concept behind it. Uh, in fact, I'm, uh, I, I prefer to actually use conceptual photographer, but it sounds a little pompous perhaps, and maybe people don't understand what the hell it means. So fine mm. art is more accepted. But um, uh, for me, uh, the, the the main thing is the concept. I'm very projectual and conceptual when I approach my my work. Um, yes, of course, I do love the big sunrises and the big sunsets. I have nothing against that kind of photography, and I need to do it, uh, and I love to do it um, for my for workshop business and so on. You know, for promotion, for editorial, for whatever. But my personal work is conceptual in nature, and it always starts. Uh, uh, with an idea, uh, and, and the idea is not necessarily that I twist my mustache sitting at the table and I then I found an idea and I go Eureka and I go out photography. The idea oftentimes develop as I go. So I notice that I'm attracted to some subjects or some uh, ways of rendering some certain subjects and a portfolio is starting to grow up both in my mind and in my hard drive, so to speak. Yep. And then eventually, at some point, I sort of, sort of click with me and I sort of think, oh, okay, this is a nice uh, body of work and it means this. And now I got why I've been doing this for the last year or so. You know? sure, sure. And then I developed that. Funny enough, the moment that the concept uh, clarifies in my mind, it's also the moment when the project is nearly done. Because... Yep. Then the risk for me is that of trying to approach everything to make it work in, in that kind of concept. You yeah, know, really. it doesn't make sense. Yep. Uh, so it's sort of like I photograph things and then they go together in a portfolio. And then when I think, oh, now I got this portfolio, then uh, the risk is, all right, so whatever I see, I try to shoot in that kind of way. And then yeah, you try to shoehorn like it even if it might not fit. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's sort of like fit the square thing in the round hole and yep, yep. and then it's when I lose interest and I start developing something else. <laughs> so so for me it's the concept behind and the intent obviously and uh, and then and also maybe this will sound a little controversial for some but uh, the technique is also uh, important for me. So mm -hmm. uh, for me I um, I don't think the technical precision is detrimental for the artistic expression. I do think that uh, technical precision or perfection uh, should be a given for the, when we do the work that we do, we yeah. should be as technically perfect as we can. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the craft part of photography. And once you, you, you are over that, then your creativity can flow really freely. And I have nothing against people that don't care about that and they just shoot yeah, totally uh, zen and the arch, art of archery kind of style. You know, I have yeah, no yeah. problem with that. It's the result that counts. That's just my process. But in my process, I use a tech camera. I use mm -hmm. an Arca Swiss tech camera, which is a very, very slow camera and yeah. very uh, yeah, purpose-oriented. So you got to do things to make the shot come out, otherwise it doesn't come out. It doesn't, he has auto nothing. So you gotta do everything, everything. manually. Yep. And you know, so for me, that's also uh, important in, in the way that I uh, construct my, my images. 
I, I hope it made some sense to you. Yeah, no, it certainly does. I guess, you know, with, with the equipment that's available today, do you see, and I've seen this in a, a number of photographers that I've, I've spoken to in their, their work as well, do you see putting constraints like that totally manual process, that particular camera, as not so much putting obstacles in the way, but in helping you hone the craft and focus, I guess, more on things like the composition and so forth, because you know you've got to photograph in a certain way. So therefore, this this tool that I've got, if I if I use it in the right way, I know that I, I know the expected result that I'm going to get out of the other end, if that makes sense. Uh, it definitely works for me, yes. I'm not saying it should be an universal truth, no, no, no. but it does work for it, me. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I've seen some fantastic iPhone and uh, Android photographers, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. No, obviously, indeed. You know, for me, the, the result is, is all that matters, you know. But personally, yes, I do find that kind of process uh, helpful. And I always photograph on a tripod. Mm -hmm. uh, that also helps slowing down. And also, since the process is so slow, on the other hand, it sort of like inspires me or stimulates me or forces me, as you said, in a way to explore the location first, like walk in the location and look around. Because yeah. at the, the moment I, I take out my tripod and I start doing things, if that doesn't work, then it would take me a long time to reset somewhere else. Yeah, so yeah. I better, you know, I better, better do make your mind up before you, yeah. before you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it helps so, me, so yes, indeed. I, I guess talk, talk to me about that. I mean, um, you, you've talked about going into the field with a concept. Um, how, do you, how do you feel when you get there and say the lighting conditions aren't playing the way that you'd like them to? You know, let's, let's say it's the, you, you're looking for some side light on, on a mountain or a cliff or a you know a hillside or something and the clouds just come in and you know it's totally gray do you just pack up and go home or do you shoot through that that difficulty or or, or what you know how, how do you deal with that adversity i guess of not getting the shot that you envisaged with the concept originally uh well <laughs> Um, that happens too many times to pack course, up and go home. That's, that's that's the <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I never pack up and go home. And I think um, it's actually stimulating and inspiring as well. This is why probably I don't develop one concept only at a, any given time. Because yeah. I want to keep my mind free to sort of like uh, go with the flow with the weather that we find. And sure. as you know, that's yeah, totally unpredictable and... Uh, but um, I do believe that there is always something to photograph. Uh, it's just that we are not able to see it. So that's yeah. my approach. Uh, especially when, as you said, if we go in the field with a preconceived uh, vision or image or concept in our mind, and then we risk to sort of like, okay, that didn't work out, forget about it. But uh, I think it's um, it's very inspiring to just sort of, go in the field without expectation, so to speak. So that's what I'm trying to do. And then react to whatever light conditions or tide or you know, wind or whatever I find. And um, so I always try and photograph, even if I then trash everything, I always photograph when I go out because I think it's, uh, yeah. it's good gymnastic for the eye and the brain. And 
actually the muscle memory and the technique and everything else. You know? Yeah. Okay. So what about the process itself? For, you know, you've, you've got to the field, as you said, you might walk around. How long would you, well, actually, let, let's start before that. How long, let, let's say you, you've decided you want to go somewhere. How long would you spend thinking about that and planning that trip before you actually go? And then we can talk about what happens in the field a little bit more. All right. Um, so um, the planning part of the trip uh, is done uh, mostly by my wife, funny enough. Uh, she's okay. my editor and my location manager, so to speak. So I tell her, okay, how about going to, let's say, Australia, you know, and I've oh. seen photos out of the south coast and that inspires me. You know? So she goes and looks at uh, photographs at Google Maps and something like that. And she does a lot of research. And then she calls me and we sit through all that she uh, found. And um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll think about uh, mostly on Google Maps um, with you know, the satellite view. If I yep. look, if I see like rock formation and things that look um, sort of like a potential, they have potential, uh, we, we established a sort of uh, a frame for our trip. And then, uh, and then we go there. And I normally, uh, if I can spare the time, I kind of allow twice or three times as much the time that is potentially sure. needed so right so if in one location uh, i i allow maybe two days for that because you never know the weather or three days if i can spare you know yeah and then um and we do that and we do that at times uh with the sessions like that and we prepare trips that we are gonna do at some point so we have a lot of uh trips that are in various stages of planning and um so that's the first, the first part. Uh, I never look at photos of places right before the trip because I don't want to get influenced by what I see. Okay. Uh, I do look maybe like a year ahead when we decide is it worth going somewhere. You know? Yeah, right. right. And um, but then I never look at photos of uh, other people's photos because I don't want to get influenced by by things. I and when we arrive to to places. Um, I walk, normally I, uh, we explore in daytime when yeah. the light is not uh, great. Um, and so I can, I can understand the location. I can um, understand what I want to do with the location. I can understand if it's on the sea. I can understand what kind of tide do I need? Where is the sun? Because, yeah. you know, on TPE, you can see where the sun rises and sets. But That's the real right. world yeah. is never the same thing because you have a no. rock in the way, you have a cliff in the way, you have whatever in the way. You know? That's exactly so it. Yeah. You, and uh, you gotta you gotta rec, um, do some um, recognition and uh, and um, and decide some recon and then decide what to do. Mm -hmm. And then we we come we come back. And even in the recon, I take photos. And if the sky is cloudy, I love clouds. As you probably noticed in my work, I love the, to use the clouds. So if there is clouds, I do that, and then and then I come back as many times as it takes. And um, I'm noticing that through the years that very seldom my best work is on the first visit. Yeah. I need 
my best work is normally when I come back. It might be the next day. It doesn't have to be five years later, you know. But sure, sure. But the first time I might be overwhelmed and might be overlooking things. Uh, so that's why I do a, a first visit, you know. Mm, okay. How would you describe, I guess, your process in the field? What are what are the things that you're looking for that make up the compositions that you, you'd be happy to shoot? First of all, for me, composition is the first and most important thing in an image. Other people, most people perhaps would see the light or say the light. But for me, um, especially today with Photoshop, you can recreate whatever light you want, but you cannot recreate the composition if yep. it's not done correctly in the field. So for me, composition is the first and, and most important pillar or above which a good image stand. So, um, and for me, composition is uh, a matter of lines and masses. Masses being physical masses, like a boulder or a cliff or a sea stack yeah. or whatever you have, the mountain, but also masses of uh, colors and textures. So if yeah. you do have like the sea, I can foresee, for instance, and this wave, let's say, and I can imagine, okay, if I do three seconds, this waves will turn into stripes. But if I do three minutes, this wave will turn into a flat expanse of something, you know, of texture. Yep. Yep. So I can, I, I try to organize the elements that are either um, physically present in the landscape or that I can transform in the landscape like if you have moving clouds you can transform them into lines and those lines would go from here to there you know and i so i try to to think in those terms so um lines and masses and uh, you mentioned the foreground and the, and the background i do love a good relationship between foreground and background if i can make it happen but i don't force it if it's not there so to speak yeah. you know so it's sort of like it's um it depends on, on the locations yeah and i i'm not really fond on the rules i know all the rules that there are the rules of thirds the spiral the fibonacci the rules of whatever right <laughs> but they're there to be broken that, of course <laughs> you know I, I love the rules but because i can forget about the rules <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, if the rule of thirds works, it works. But in some situations, it just doesn't work and you cannot force yeah, things. There, there's, there, there's certain yeah. skies where putting a third of the, the third of the frame in, in the sky is just pointless, you know? Exactly. And uh, so I, I, I consider them guidelines that exist in the back of my mind and, uh, and I forgot about them when I'm working and hopefully they will guide me and subconsciously or something you know <laughs> but yes i'm not too fond on that, on that you know sure sure so when, once you've uh you know got the images you've uh packed up and come home are you straight into your processing or do you leave it for a while and leave it to to think about it and forget about it or you know is it just a quick review and pick yeah that one will work that one will work and and, and move on. <laughs> now, that's also interesting that you ask, because I never process my images right after I took them. 
Yeah. Um, I, I have images from 2018 that are waiting to be processed. I just yep. checked the other day and the older folders that I need to, to look into is from 2018. Um, so uh, I always process them after some time. Um, uh, it kind of started by accident because um, I, I am on the road about in two chunks, but for about six months a year. Yeah, so right. normally I leave in mid-September and I come back home in mid-December. Mm-hmm. So right there, the images that, and I'm, I'm on the road both for my personal work and for workshops. So I do not have the time to actually sit down and process images with the care that uh, they would require. So I, I cannot do it. It's, maybe it's just me that I'm not able to do it. You know? And uh, so right there, when I come home, images are already two or three months old. And then I'm right. home for Christmas, maybe around yeah. New Year's, and then I leave for three more months. So I do processing in the summer. And so best case, I'm processing images that are between one month old or six months old, sure. right there. You know? But I noticed that doing that, it's sort of extremely helpful to me to remove um, the... Uh, not the emotional thing, because I remember everything about, I have too good a memory. I never forget anything. So I remember everything that I shot and how I did it and so on. But yep. it removes sort of like the, um, for instance, um, you, know, you climb the mountain for three hours to get to some spot. And then you think, yep. oh, this image must be great. Because, you know, I put a lot of effort into it. And then you go back home and it's just, man, you know, it's... You go, and, eh, and, it was all right. You know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit. Lots know. of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I walked three hours for nothing with 20 kilos <laughs> on my back. You know? <laughs> so it kind of removes that, you know, or if I you know, I photograph, like, in the ocean, like, with, with waders and so on, and those photos are very adventurous must be a great image you know and then maybe it's maybe it is maybe it isn't so uh, removing the time uh, remove that sort of like uh, uh, connection that you have with the process that you did and you sort of like for me at least it allows me to look at the image a little more objectively uh, a little less uh, uh, sort of like um, <laughs> you know i'm not in love anymore it's yeah. sort of like yep. Is not like that the lightning striking, it's sort of like if it still survives, if an image, if still consider it a good image after six months or a year, then it might be a good image for real. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I de- definitely get it. So what what about your workflow? Are you are you spending, you know, hours honing the image, you know, sharpening contrast you know doing doing your dodging and burning and all the rest of it or are you uh, a less is more sort of editor um i think that would depend on the image probably um normally i try to get as much in camera as i can number one because i'm old <laughs> yep. uh, um, i started with film in the 70s you know so mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, I'm used to the fact that photography is made in camera more than in the computer. Uh, it's just the way I, I, I came up with photography. You know? oh. So, and also I like the process. I like the to do long exposures and single shots. Um, 
ideologically, I like to do single shots more than sort of like single shots with grad filters more than HDR, you know, it's yeah. closer to, to my way of expressing myself, you know. Uh, and again, nothing against H people that does that and they do composites and they do whatever they do. It's the final image that counts. But yep. the way to get there for me is important. So since I'm doing that, then I have less to do in in computer in post processing, which, all, which is also instrumental for me because I don't ha I don't have a lot of time to spend to do that, mm. doing that. So. Uh, like recently I got a black and white digital back because I like to just see things in black and white because, you know, my, most of my fine artwork is in black and white. So oh. um, I think it makes more sense to me to just work in black and white is one less step that I have to do in post-processing. You know? So, um, but that said, um, there are images that uh, require more attention in post-processing, so to speak. And images that are, uh, depending on the conditions and, and whatever happened in the field and so on, there are images that uh, need a little less of that. So, okay. but I, I'm not a, a person that that uh, that spends a lot of time uh, doing post processing. So, in in your alternative uh, um, that you that you offer me, I think I'm more of a less is more mm -hmm. kind of guy, if possible. Sure, sure. And if I can add a little thing, you know, when I was a musician, uh, you know, classical musicians need to practice a lot every day just to stay in shape. Yeah. yeah. And um, and my my goal was always to do that as economically as I could, because I like to play. I didn't like to play scales. You know, I yeah, like yeah, to play music. Yeah. No one yeah, likes so the practice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, I learned guitar so, at a young age and uh, hated the practice and just the, the scales <laughs> and the picking and <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah, so you know what I mean, right? Nobody yeah. likes to do that. So I, I spent a lot of years to develop a way that it was as effective and as efficient as possible to, to do that in the shortest possible amount of time. And I sure. guess when I moved to professional photography, I thought, well, I need to do the same because, you know, I like to shoot. I like to travel. I like to shoot. But I don't really like to spend one hour on one mask in Photoshop. If I can do no, the same, no. if I can get to the same effect in five minutes, <laughs> I'm, I'm much happier. You know? So, so I, I, I think that's... Uh, and also, uh, yeah, I don't know if you uh, do workshops, but... Uh, people that come to my workshops, they don't have a lot of time. They, they are not doing this full time. So they have a job, they have a family. Yep, and that's right. they inevitably, they ask me, oh, what about post-processing? And, and they have this face like, you know, I'm, I'm going to torture them. I don't know, they're, they're going <laughs> to die. <laughs> and like I said, it, it's, um, so I try to, to teach them the fastest way to bring a photo from zero to like 80% of the potential of the image in about five minutes. Yeah. So they can get to see something, you know, and then for the image that they want to spend more, I can also go into advanced stuff for them if they want. But it's so intimidating for them that I need to, I found that I needed to find a way to sort of like streamline the post-processing as much as I could so yeah. that they yeah. could enjoy the process rather than loathe the process. And yeah. in doing that, it helped me tremendously to make my own workflow more efficient and 
efficacy as well, because efficiency is great. But if you're very efficient in doing something bad, you're just doing bad stuff faster. That's right. Bad stuff efficiently. It is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You get, you get you know? to a bad result very quickly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you need to be efficient, but also efficacy, if that's a word. You need efficacy yep. and efficiency, efficiency at the same time. You know? So I think, yeah, <laughs> the less time I can spend on on a computer the happier i am yeah how, how do you feel when you're out shooting um when i'm in the zone um, i feel fantastic it's just a high you know uh, mm -hmm. is um uh, is you feel connected to nature uh you feel connected with yourself um you, you are in a sort of like a zen for me, at least, you're in a Zen mode. And that's where, back to the previous one, previous question of yours, is where having a camera that does nothing for you helps because you sort of get into that zone and into that process. And you, uh, for me, it, it's all about telling uh, the things that I'm not so great at telling with words about myself and my, and my soul and so on. So I, I get in touch. Uh, with myself and in nature, and I sort of like forget everything that happens around me. And eventually my wife sort of like wakes me up from that and says, hey, we need to go, you know, or something. <laughs> Come on, Barry, time to go for a coffee. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and, and I can stay there forever. You know, that's at least the feeling that I have, you know. So it's a, it's a beautiful way to um to, to save money on a psychiatrist on a psychologist <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm definitely with you there it's uh it, it, it's my favorite way of relaxing too and uh exactly you know, if, if you can make a career out of relaxing then that's a, that's a good thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I should have become either a yoga teacher, but that requires too much patience. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that, <laughs> or, or a photographer, maybe. Um, you've got a very defined style. Uh, how did you develop that, and how do you see it developing? And you know, I mean, some people have their routine, and that's that's what they do, and they're, they're, they're happy with that style and they don't see any need to extend it or, or, or develop it. Is your style still developing? And, you know, if so, how? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's uh, very appreciated. And uh, I definitely, second, I definitely think it is because I think that when, when we stop developing and growing is the moment we start actually dying. Mm. Uh, creatively and artistically so and um, the way i develop my style and what i believe is the way that we all develop our own style in my view is is, is like this is by doing so you go to the field into the field and you shoot and then you go home and look at the photos and uh, you decide which photos you like and you don't and then the next time you go into the field, you would have built the beginning of a sort of like data database uh, in your mind that allows you to um, sort of like discard solution that you already know won't work for any given compositional problem or light problem that you face in the field. And slowly you're gonna sort of like develop what is eventually becoming your style. 
Um, yeah. But to me, it all starts uh, basically with problem solving. I, I understand it sounds mundane, but then I approach composition as uh, a sort of uh, artistic problem solving between sure. quotes, if you will. So it's sort of like, okay, how do I make these elements work? And, and then you try and you change optics and you change your uh, vent, uh, vantage point mm -hmm. and you change your exposure and you change your filters, you change whatever, and then you go home and you examine the results. And then the next time that you face a similar problem, you, you already know that that focal length won't work or that yeah. approach won't work, right? And for post-processing, so that way in the field you sort of develop uh, your shooting style and then this, in the same way, in post-processing, you're sort of developing uh, your uh, post-processing style or your visual style, if you want. Um, yeah. So by doing that, by post-processing images, and then you look at them, and then you like, you don't like uh, things, and then you change things, and then you look at them again after six years or six months or six days, you know, and you're like, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, or, or yeah. oh, that's too bland, or maybe I went too far. And I do that also while processing. My, my post-processing is done in steps and horizontally. So I process like 10 images, the first step, then I walk away. And then I do a second step on all the images and then I walk away. Okay. And when I come back, uh, I notice, oh man, man, I went too far with this. This is too contrasty. Or maybe, oh man, this one is too bland. I, it's not really powerful. And, and it helps me doing it like that. It helps me move away and go back it allows me to keep some distance and put some distance and doing it horizontally it allows me to develop a style actually because if i uh, did one image vertically from zero to finished and then another one they would end up being different but if i do them in batches i I'm, i have a better chance to develop a style and a coherence for a portfolio or for any given body of work you yeah. know so that's the way I do it. And it, it works nicely for me. Um, but again, any approach, as soon as the result is good, any approach is fine by me. Uh, fair enough. How much of your success would you attribute to your, your ability to communicate well? Do I have any ability to communicate is the question oh, I'm yeah, asking myself. Communicating fine at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, communication is fundamental. And you know, back to the music metaphor, uh, I always used to say, because uh, yeah, when you play sort of like a performing thing, so you got to go on stage and play. And stage fight is a very real thing, you know? So I used to tell my students, well, if you play fantastically well in your bathroom, the world will know about it, you know? So unless that's what you want to do, if you want to be an amateur that plays for himself, fantastic. But if you want to play, then at some point, you've got to have to face that. Yeah. Yep. And we, what we do now with photography is basically the same thing. You can take the most amazing, beautiful and history making photographs, but if they stay in your hard drive, Nobody it's just for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever sees them. And that's fantastically fine if that's what you want to do. But for me as a professional, that would be the, the, the end of me. Yes, I need to get my work out there. So... <laughs> Uh, communication, marketing, and, and all that, it's uh, uh, probably 80% of the success, mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say. Um, 
And if we consider that having a good body of work or a strong body of work or a great body of work should be a given if you want to do this job, then communication becomes the 100% of putting it out there, you know? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, paradoxically, if you will, but, uh, but it's really important. And obviously, um, uh, there, there are a lot of people that are much better at communicating that they are at doing what they do and are much more successful uh, than other people that sure. are great photographers, but they're not so great at communicating. So yeah. I think honing our marketers. communication skills, exactly. <laughs> honing our communication skills, I think is just really important. And, and, uh, and I, I'm, I don't, yeah, I don't agree with people that say, no, forget about it. The, the work speaks for itself. The work should speak for itself as, and that's granted, but you also should put some people to listen to it speaking. Because if the work speaks in an empty room, the work is great. But again, uh, that's that's right. Oh, it, it, it's interesting you say that, and the the, the music analogy is uh, something similar to a conversation I was having with uh, another uh, photographer. He does mostly street stuff, but he's also a musician. Was in a band for some time, and then sort of packed that away and concentrated on photography. But he was sort of asking the question: Should he? you know, push through his inhibitions about that side of his personality and that, that side of his art, artistry, I guess, uh, and, you know, get back into showing a, a little bit more of his, his work in the in the music field. And, you know, my advice to him was absolutely. You, I kind of lost you there, Grant Forrest. Sorry, you got me? Uh, yeah, um, I kind of lost you at some point. Uh, you, you went... Uh, silent for a sec. Uh, okay, sorry about that. Um, no, no. Yeah, so what what I was saying is uh, he's you know he he's asking whether or not he should push through uh, his inhibitions about some of his uh, you know being embarrassed that he's not good enough or whatever you know those those feelings that you get uh, about your work whether it's photography or music or or what. Uh, and my advice to him was absolutely you've got to push through the inhibitions, put your work out there, and you know some people will like it. Not everyone will, but you know, you if you don't put it out there, as you said, you know, you you're playing in the bathroom. You know, you no no, yeah. no one no one sees it. No one's going to know about it. So if you want people to know about it, you've basically got to get it out there and get people uh, people aware of uh, what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I think that the problem for us as artists is that our work is basically ourselves. So yeah. we put ourselves on the line. And mm. if you perform, even more so, because you are physically on stage with guys in front of you listening absolutely. to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's both at the same time, um, basically a way of bearing your soul in front of other people and nobody wants to do that because yeah uh, well, it's, uh, you know everybody it's, everybody has that fear that you know people will laugh at you not find you good uh, enough criticize exactly. you or whatever you know you know so that's one aspect but the other aspect for me is that we need to be able to uh, um, I don't want to say detach from our work, but sort of like uh, 
consider our work as a snapshot of us at yep. a given moment in time. So Absolutely. that doesn't define me, it's just defining something that I did at some point in time, yeah. right? So if I can manage my, my uh, psychology to accept that, then I can put my work out there and then I can um, use it to grow because I, I go out, I play or I put my photos out and if people criticize them, it doesn't uh, inflict me pain, you know, on, on, it doesn't create um, you know, discomfort or pain on my, on my uh, self-worth or the image that I have on myself, but it can help me grow, fine-tune, and you know, focus my vision better yeah, and every, so on and so forth. Every piece of criticism yeah. should be an opportunity for you to improve. You know? Now, exactly. okay, when, when I say that, I don't mean somebody just throwing rocks at you because they don't like you as a person or whatever and, you know, they say bad things about your work. What I'm saying is if somebody's giving you, uh, you know, some feedback about your work and the more constructive that feedback is, the better. But if somebody's mm -hmm. giving that, then that's an opportunity. That That's a gift, you know, that, that's an opportunity for you to take that on board and say, okay, well, if I do change some of these things, if I crop that a bit tighter or crop it a bit wider or change the contrast or whatever it is, you know, or move move my position and go go back to the, 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 the spot and reshoot by moving the, the vantage point slightly to the left or right or higher or lower or whatever, you know, they're the things that can help you hone and improve your craft. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, one more thing possibly is a beneficial thing coming from criticism is that when people ask you or tell you, okay, how about this crop? Why don't you do that? You know, and it helps me thinking uh, about why I did uh, the things that I did the way I did. And if I have to explain it to you, it's uh, either strengthen my vision sort of like, and allows me to sort of like verbalize and, and uh, yeah, sort of like uh, express that in words, or uh, it helps me questioning it and says, oh, right, yes, that doesn't make any sense or didn't make any sense. I don't know why I did it, you know? Yep. So being open to, to, to other people's opinion is, is absolutely fundamental. And as hard as it is to put ourselves out there, because basically when we do that, we drop the armor uh, and the self-defenses that we spent a lifetime to build. But I think it's, um, it's for the best. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah. I want to want to talk to you a little bit about places now. Uh, you know, where where you lived. Does that influence how you shoot or or what you shoot, uh, or are you more about getting out into the wider world than your local area? Um, uh, I think I'm curious, basically. Uh, so. Um, I think it's curiosity that drives me. So um, that makes uh, makes uh, the location uh, actually position on the globe less uh, important for me. So okay. if I see something that is interesting to me and then stimulates my curiosity and it's just around the corner, I go shoot that. But if I see uh, like the Wanaka tree in New Zealand and I want to go there, 
then I got I had to go to well, New Zealand. Well, there's only one of them, so you got to go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So I think it's curiosity that drives me, and um, and I enjoy being on the road. So I've I've no problem in living out of a bag for six months, four months, sure. whatever. Yeah. So I'm I'm fine with that. So I like the the, the whole process, but um, but to me, I think it's um, I think you can find great photography and great images everywhere uh, pretty much there are iconic locations around the world that are iconic for a reason Um, but i uh, interesting because i put out a tweet yesterday about this Um, i think that uh, to me the real creative challenge is or a bigger creative challenge is in going somewhere that everybody else went and make a unique image. Mm -hmm. If I go to a place where I'm the first going, it's going to be unique by definition because it's me that it's the only photo that exists. But if I can make a unique image of the Wanaka tree that has been photographed a million times, then for me, it's a much better, um, uh, much more rewarding artistically speaking or creatively speaking is a much more rewarding achievement. So when I go to places um, that are like iconic or famous, I enjoy doing that. And I'm trying to look at them um, with the eye of a child, you know, it's sort of like I never seen them before and, yeah. and try to give them my, my interpretation. And if you take this and copy paste it into the field next door, then you, 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 sort of like train yourself to, to, to make images out of nothing, um, even when other people would, wouldn't even bother to take the camera out. Yeah, I, yeah. My wife, that is fundamental for me on many levels, obviously, but also in the, in the business, because she's my editor and she's uh, my partner in crime. Um, she tells me that probably, according to her, one of my best quality is to be able to make images out of nothing. And the first time she said that to me, it was sort of like a, uh, in a funny spirit. You know, we kind of laugh about that. Yep. But then I thought about it and I thought, well, if that's true, then it's great because you know, it allows me to really be able to, 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 to make my vision, uh, to make my vision come across regardless of where I am. And yeah. that would be my purpose, ulti- ultimate, you know, ultimately. So, so yeah, um, I think it's the curiosity and the, the, the challenge of being able to, to create images out of whatever that moves mm. me. So the, the physical location on the globe is a little less important. Okay. So given that you've shot all over the world now, what locations are still on your bucket list? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to live long enough, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, 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 no one ever will, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I would, seriously, I've been using you know, Australia and New Zealand as an example during this conversation. Sure. But that's on the bucket list and that's where we're going to go if everything goes well, finger crossed, in 2023, probably in the second half of the year. And I've been wanting to come to you guys for a long time. I've been to Sydney when I was a musician, um, but uh, not to do photography. So uh, I wasn't that much into that. I played at the Australian Flute Convention, of all things. Oh, wow. And they invited me to play in there. And I 
drove around a little bit and I loved what I saw. And so I've been wanting to come back ever since. So we're going to spend some time there. So definitely Australia, New Zealand, Easter Island are on my bucket list. I want to go to the Oregon coast. I've never been there. I want to go to Finland and Norway, and not just Lofoten, which of course is some place that everybody wants to go to. But I, I, yeah. I want to, if I'm lucky, I want to spend like a month or two exploring the fjords and everything up there. It should be beautiful. Yeah. And um, uh, Patagonia, I never been, and uh, yeah, Patagonia is fine, but. I'm a little less interested in, in going there personally. Okay. I understand the beauty and the majestic nature of those landscapes. But uh, and I, I hope I'll, I'll be able to make it sometime, but um, not as pressing for me. That's for a lot lower down that I'm doing list. now. A little lower down on the list. And, and I'm lucky to live in Italy, which is beautiful and yeah. close to a lot of European destinations, which is fantastic. And um, how about you, if I might ask you a question? Yeah, English. sure, what? sure. Uh, I, I did Easter Island a few years ago, actually. On a, oh, we, wow. did a we did a trip to Peru um, and then did a, a side trip on the way home. Well, kind of on the way home, had to go back via Chile. So, you know, it wasn't really on the yeah. way home. It was fly halfway <laughs> across the Pacific to fly... <laughs> Fly back to Chile and then all the way across the Pacific. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that, yeah, that, I that, that that was amazing. That was that was a, a a real bucket list. Peru was a was a real bucket list one. What's still on the list? Uh, funnily enough, you know, I'd love to do Iceland. I've never never been to Iceland, so that that's that's up there. I'd love to go back to Japan. I I spent a bit of time around there, which was was great. And I'd love to go back to Canada because uh, I saw a little bit there around uh, Banff and um, uh, areas around Alberta and whatever. But there's there's so I mean as you, as you said so so many places. Love to go to Patagonia. Love to do Antarctica. Oh yeah. There's a there's a little island that's really hard to get to, but it's about halfway between the southern tip of New Zealand and Antarctica called Macquarie Island. That's Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, it's, it's kind of a, um, I mean, it's, it's tiny, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a nature reserve. Um, so getting permission to get in there and getting there is, is challenging. Um, and you can really only go there in the summer months because, you know, you get there in winter and it's, you know, blizzards and, you know, <laughs> Um, it's very very strong winds for for most of the most of the year, but um, the you know you have things like elephant seals, penguin colonies, albatross colonies, uh, and those sorts of things. It's just just an amazing uh, wildlife refuge, I guess. That's really small, really compact, but um, you know I, I I can see real potential for uh, you know if, if you can get there. As I say, it's not not somewhere that you can just uh, you know, jump on a flight to you've got to you, you've got to apply to go there, and you know, um, usually you've got to have some kind of scientific contribution that you you're bringing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah, it'd be be much easier for someone from uh, National Geographic or something like that to get in there than, than just any any old landscape photographer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, uh, we are not really considered as you know, big contributors to science or anything uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> <Not a lot. laughs> 
they mistreat us, isn't it? A little bit sort of like, oh yeah, these guys, they do like beautiful things and that's it, you know? But I think that landscape photography is much more than that, actually, you know? It's, uh, I totally agree. It's of course, yeah, you know, it's, it is beautiful, of course, yeah. But, uh, uh, but also yeah, animal photography or nature photography is also beautiful. So why that has a contribution to science and ours doesn't, you know? <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I think it can uh, because you know you can make people aware of the the landscape that is there you know and absolutely. whilst trying to make it look as beautiful as possible you you also raise the the awareness that you know some of these places are very fragile and that you know yeah. if 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 we're not careful and you know it's one of the things that I, I want to talk about a little bit later but uh you know, if we're not careful, we'll lose them. And once yeah, they're gone, yeah. those photos, those photos will have much more value because they're the only thing that actually proves they they existed in the first place. Exactly. And also, I think that if you make people aware of how beautiful nature and the landscape is, they would be less inclined to throw plastic bottles around when they go for hike so. or something. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So we've talked about places uh, you'd like to go. Where have mm -hmm. you been that you would want to go back to? That where, where's somewhere that draws you back, keeps calling you back that you've you've been to before, and you you just have to keep going there. Um, I don't want to say everywhere I've been. I mean, that, uh, <laughs> in a way, it's it's like that. But if I had to choose. Um, number one, first of all, I've been really privileged because I've been in, in so many amazing places and that's something that, that I'm incredibly grateful for. And um, number two, I'm also very privileged because thanks to my workshop, I get, I get to go back to many of those places. And yeah, of course, I'm taking care of the group, but I still go there and see the places and eventually I can squeeze a photo every once in a while and then yeah. and so that's uh, that's a real privilege but uh, high on the list is iceland iceland um I'm, i go there maybe twice a year uh, yep. at the very least and i'm never tired of going back to iceland it's just amazing it's uh, and it's very close to my soul in terms of what i'm trying to do with my photography so oh, sure. um and i go in winter and i highly recommend you go in winter if you ever go and have a chance to decide when to go because the the contrast between the black rocks and the volcanic landscape and the white snow and blue ice is just and if you get some great color in the light in the sky is just to die for it's just amazing yeah, yeah. Uh, ironically the next stop for me would be the southwest usa so one is frozen yeah. glaciers and snow and the other one is desert and sand and <laughs> and red rocks you know but uh probably because it's the place when i got the call <laughs> yeah. so i'm always very happy to go back to death valley or the southwest and uh, those landscapes for me they have some they have a deep spiritual quality to mm -hmm. them and the deep uh, spiritual depth to them that I'm never tired to explore. So, you know, um, and many of those places that we go photograph are actually sacred to the native um, uh, inhabitants of those places. And you definitely understand why, because you really feel the power of nature. And if there were a temple to the earth, to me, it would be the Southwest USA. These landscapes are just 
are just so powerful and so nearly overwhelming that you know, you're just happy to be there and forget about the camera. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. for me that's uh, uh, so Iceland in a way. And also, you know, I, I always look at the stories behind things and uh, and the legends behind things. And when you go to Iceland and all these places, they have names that reminds or uh, refer back to Nordic legends and so on. And you yeah, definitely yeah. understand why. You know, these places they have such power built into them in a way. And uh, um, I feel that if we are lucky and privileged enough and intelligent enough, artistically speaking, we might be able to get a little bit of that power coming across and can be lucky enough to get a little bit of that power coming across through our work and for other people to see uh, the emotions and the feelings that we get when we get in front of those places. Because those places for me are just you know, so so um, bigger than us in a way. You know, yeah, right. you really feel how small we are and how what we can do is sort of like extract as much as we can in terms of feelings and mood and expressions and emotions and squeeze it in our work and try to make sense of what nature did for us. And, uh, and we are gonna be unsuccessful all the time. And that's why I love to come back uh, <laughs> as many times as I can, because maybe the next time I'm gonna be a little better and I'm gonna be able to you know, uh, give a little more justice to render more justice to the places and to, and to what I'm saying, you know? Yeah. So it's a never ending endeavor for me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm doomed. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most memorable experience you've had in, in your photography career? I, you know, the, the obvious answer would be the next one. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and also the easier, the easy way out of it. <laughs> um, I, I hope the next one, let's put it this way. I hope the most memorable thing is still around the corner. Mm -hmm. and, but um, uh, I've seen uh, things that... Uh, that you know signed me and and have been definitely seminal for me in my in my growth photographically and artistically and have been fundamental for my growth and i think i cannot pin it up uh, pin it down to one single experience okay. but uh, i i think probably the first time i went to iceland was sort of like that kind of experience the yeah. first time that i went to the southwest and it was summer and it was incredibly hot and uh, and uh, some of the landscape and the sky and the things that i saw were were really seminal for me mm -hmm. iceland was seminal for me definitely the first time i went to iceland was unforgettable um and uh, pretty much I try to find something like that every time I go out there. Uh, sure. So uh, I try to, to turn every experience into one of those moments. I don't know if I'm always successful. Sometimes it's obviously less powerful, but, um, but I think I've been lucky in that I, I sort of been able to make it into an enjoyable experience and into a, 
formation experience every time that I go out, even if it's like really bad and the, the weather is not cooperating at all and anything. I try to learn something and I think it's the learning that is possibly the most memorable thing for me. Mm. So if I can learn whatever, any time that I go out, I'm, I'm happy. Fabulous. I know wow. it's a it's sort of like a not the answer you probably were of before. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Have you have you got any <laughs> horror stories? Every everyone has a horror story in their photography. Oh yes. Career. Oh, I, I have so many of those. <laughs> what, what's the worst? What's the worst thing that's happened? Well, I have lots of gear horror story. Like <laughs> it was when two thousand twenty one in winter in November December and twenty one. And I was out there with my phase one camera and an accident happened and the tripod toppled and the, the digital bag went down on the snow, on the frozen snow, and it kind of cracked, the, the, the screen cracked and the, and the electronic connection stopped working so I couldn't use it. And, uh, and the money that is in, that I put into that camera that was probably the gear, gear-wise, this the probably the most uh, horrible moment. <laughs> and I understand yeah. it's money-related more than anything else, <laughs> but that was terrible. And and then we we got stranded many times. We got uh, got caught by storms. We got uh, uh, caught by waves. I got, yeah, all sort of this kind of things. Um, um, but um, I got to say that all these experiences during the years um, were very, very good for me on a more personal level. Because uh, again, my wife would remember the first time, for instance, we went to Normandy in 2011. I wasn't then at all. <laughs> if mm. the weather was not cooperating, I would get frustrated um, and I would get sort of like, because I had very little time to build my portfolio. So yeah, I had yeah. like whatever holiday I could spare, you know, so to go there and, and not get in the image that was like, you know, and getting frustrated. But as time has went by, all the horror stories actually turned me into a much better person. And in terms of uh, resilience to frustration, to bad experiences, to you know, not being able to get the shot. And I'm, I'm okay, you know, I, we go there, I don't get the shot. And she's like, ah, but you didn't get the shot. I'm like, no problem. I'm okay, let's go eat, you know. <laughs> it's going to be a better day tomorrow, you know. That's uh, it. So it's, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, story. Go on. Yeah, no, no. I was saying the horror story in old age, probably, turned me into much better <laughs> zen and more relaxed. The person, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that attitude, though, is, uh, you know, it comes with experience, but it's, it's something that, you know, a lot of photographers need to develop in their, you know, over their careers is that ability to just let it go and say, oh, didn't get it this time, we'll get it next time. Yeah. Ultimately, there is nothing you can do anyway. So. <laughs> Most of the time. Well, yeah, except when, you know, uh, you... You, you've screwed it up by, you know, leave, leaving yeah. your horses at home or leaving. <laughs> I, I left a tripod, tripod head at home. I, I drove, drove for about three hours to a shoot, you know, then went on another hour and a bit hike, got to the point where I'm unpacking my bag and there's no tripod head. Oh, no. <laughs> Great. 
Well, I, I had one of those uh, in Death Valley going driving to the racetrack with a group, you know, with a, my, my group for during the workshop. And we drove there and we remove all the bags from the Jeep. And we, because we use a special Jeep for that, and uh, we remove everything from the Jeep. And I kind of find out that I forgot my own tripod. So I loaded everybody else's tripods on the Jeep, but I forgot my own tripod. So I don't have a tripod. And I'm like, Okay, so we drove like three hours, <laughs> and the last hour and a half of which on a on a sort of like a four by four series four by four road. Yeah. So it's not like I can go back and grab the tripod, you know. So, so I but I said okay, whatever. And one of the guys said was very very kind. Said if you need for a shot or two, I can I'll be happy to lend you mine. And but nice. I yeah. didn't want to do that because you know. He came to the workshop, and so he is the one that should get. That's the right. He's the customer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, no, no, don't worry. And I say I learned how to use my bag as a makeup, uh, yep. uh, make make do tripod. And obviously, I had to shoot very low on the ground. So I tried to get images that way too. So it was it taught me something, you know. And and I thought, okay, there are images that you can uh, grab at insect height on, on, on the playa that I never actually thought about because I'm always a little higher than that with my tripod, even if I go down, you know. Sure. So it, and after that, I thought, okay, that's good. And the same thing happened once in Iceland. Again, uh, a little tripod accident. That time was a tripod, was a Gitzo tripod that self-destructed. Basically, it snapped. The metal part snapped oh. and uh, broke. I think it was a... Um, cold thing or something like that yeah, yeah and so the only thing i had was my wife's uh tripod which was a sort of like this uh, uh very very small and light uh travel tripod the the small section of which is like in italy i, I would say a spaghetti thing kind of thing <laughs> so in winter in iceland you couldn't really open that thing you know so yeah. <laughs> i could use it but with no leg extended because if i extended even one leg it would start wobbling <laughs> wobble, <yeah. laughs> so you know you learn through all these little accents that we have and you also learn to hone um seriously speaking you learn to hone your workflow sort of like okay i'm going out there do I have the tripod? Do I have the head? Do I have the camera? Do I have the filters? Do I have? And you sort of like build a series of speaking. Now, for me, it, it uh, ended up in me building a mental checklist of yep. things that I go through. And I go through those when I leave home for a trip. And I go yep. through another checklist when I leave the hotel for a shoot. And another yep. checklist when I open the camera bank. And another checklist when I start fiddling with my old manual camera and uh, and go through all this checklist and i have a checklist in my mind for post-processing yeah, so my process is all basically boringly based on a set of <laughs> checklists that i go through but you know, to be honest those systems i think are really important whether they're mental or you know you've got it on a on a notepad or whatever you know that that checklist mm -hmm. and you go yes i've got everything that i need on where I want, you know, on going through the the, the post processing, etc. That that sort of things, those systems that you put into it, I think, are, are really important. As you said, it's about making things more efficient too, you know, so that you're not scrambling around looking for. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, when when I 
I've got a filter bag with multiple pockets. They always, that filter always goes in that pocket. So I know even in the dark, which pocket I'm reaching into and I'm pulling out the right filter. I don't have to sit there and work Absolutely. out and turn lights on and work out, you know, am I, have I got my ND8 or my ND1000 because they're very different. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, my bag is extremely tidy and, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm aware that I might look a bit tedious in my, in my way of you know, packing things and so on, but that saves me a huge amount of time and, and grief because you, know, yeah. uh, you, you can so, look at a glance and know that something's missing or not in the right place and you know you it, it if you if you put it in a way that makes sense then it makes it much easier to work with i'm, I'm totally with exactly yeah. exactly uh, so i think that is a point in in being well organized if you do the job we do definitely uh, definitely makes things easier Beyond that, what's the practice of photography taught you about the world? Mm -hmm. I, I can answer like this. I'm always being uh, in my childhood and when I was a kid and growing up, um, I, I wasn't very young. I've always been very silent and observing. And mm -hmm. I think that the practice of photography uh, was both a result of that and uh, a way of uh, developing that. So I would say that probably the most important thing that photography taught me is to really look at things, uh, which is not just when I, it, it ended up not just being a thing that I do when I photograph, but uh, it sort of like uh, uh, became my way of going about life. So mm. I, so I look at people, I I see things, I try to see people not just look at them. I try to yeah. see things, not just look at them. And I try to uh, pay attention. So photography for me means paying attention to things that other people would uh, just overlook or yeah. you know, not, not be aware of. So it, I don't want to say that photography helped me raise my awareness about the world because I'm, I'm not a guru or a philosopher or anything. Yeah. But... In my in my small uh, for whatever little I could uh, or can do about uh, making the world a better place, I made myself a better place. I think photo photography helped me do both. Definitely helped me make myself a better person, and uh, hopefully and possibly helped me be more aware uh, of the world and living my life in a fuller and more uh, aware, productive, uh, positive way if if that makes sense yeah that absolutely makes sense and you know very very worthwhile as far as i'm concerned um mm -hmm. have you ever hit a creative wall and if so how did you handle it um sometimes i i i i, I hit creative very small creative walls uh, so to speak, <laughs> uh, <laughs> bumps in the road, but uh, painful bumps in the road. Let's say. Sure, sure. More than it, I, I, not, I never had like a, a writer's block kind yep. of thing, so I, I never hit one of those. Um, um, I hit creative walls in my post processing more than in the field, um, like like this. I I face images that I took 
and I envisioned in a way. And then when I go to the post-processing of them, I sort of cannot make it the way that I remember, the way that I have in my mind. Mm. And uh, so creatively, I it's not that I don't know what to do, but I don't know how to get there. So I think it's a creative and technical world at the same time. So I end up um, writing them off as, okay, I don't know enough about post-processing. I need to know and learn different routines that helps me get there, or maybe there aren't tools at the moment that helps me get there. So maybe I need to wait for the next version of Photoshop or whatever. You know? yeah. And some of these images, uh, some of these images I revisit in the, in, in, along the years, over the years, and I come to a point where I'm suddenly able to make sense of them. You know? So it, it's sort of like maybe more of a technical creative world than an actual creative world, but it's, it's the frustrating, uh, the, the small frustrations that I still have with my workflow are those, I think. Because you know, when I go in the field, if I'm, I'm always inspired to go out there. And if I go out there and I don't find things that makes me happy photographically, I'm now in that Zen place that we were talking about before. So I don't consider that a creative world. I consider that life. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah it didn't right. happen today. It's going to happen tomorrow. You know? yep. But I still get a little frustrated sometimes in post-processing. I need to be improve my Zen level. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know the feeling. I was, I was working on an image today, actually, and uh, it just wasn't working for me. So I gave up and worked on something different. Just to... <laughs> Exactly. Just... Forget about it. Yeah. I'll, I, I might come back revisited. to it. It depends. But uh, I was looking at it and I was actually starting to hate it. And it's it, that, that's a sign when you've got to stop. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I normally just sort of like close it and trash it, but keep the row. So yeah. if I want to revisit it in the, you know, eventually I just start again from zero and then uh, oh, I've done that. <laughs> Yeah. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing photographers right now? Um, definitely uh, abundance. Too many people doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, too many images. Abundance of people. Uh, abundance of image, images. Abundance of Instagrams and stuff like that, you know. And uh, that comes with um, diminishing awareness in people looking at the images. Because, you know, yeah. I remember you you bought a photo book and you flip through the pages and write the text and take your time on an image. But now I scroll through Instagram and yeah, I look at a billion images, but how many do I see? Yeah. Sometimes I, I scroll and I stop and I look. But uh, for so many people, I don't know, I read somewhere that the average time that people dedicate to one image is like a second. Or something or I, I, I've, something I've like seen that. it as 0 0.6 seconds yeah something like that yeah, yeah. so uh, how do you work with that <laughs> <laughs> so for me that's the, the the real problem the real problem is that we need it's up to us as photographers and artists we need to um I don't want to say educate because it sounds patronizing and pompous but we need to sort of inspire more than educate people mm. to stop and look at our work and read our words 
and dedicate time to our craft because that's the only way to me that photography uh like intentional photography can survive yeah uh, snaps iphone snaps that you share on facebook for your family and friends no worries no problem against that but the problem is if you um go on social media and on forums and whatever there is a lot of noise so serious photography or more intentional photography or photography that i would like to spend some time on looking at an image and analyzing and thinking about it get sort of buried into that noise yeah, so yeah. we need to to develop a way to filter through the noise and i can do that for my own but uh, for myself but um for other people we need probably to develop new ways of putting our work out there. Uh, NFT is definitely a huge potential in that. And uh, our own website is great, but then we are back to the, the previous question about how do you communicate that yeah. and how you get that across? Because yeah, I, I, you know, I'm very acceptable. I don't think that my work is necessarily better than the family snapshot that somebody shares on Instagram. I've, for that person, his family snap is definitely way more important than one of my black and white moody long exposures uh, that I put on my on my feed. Yeah. So importance it's in the eye of the in the eye of the beholder. So I, I don't assume to be the one deciding what is important and what's not. But I, I definitely know that these are two different products for two different audiences. You know. Or maybe the audience overlap somewhere, definitely possible. But uh, if we put our work out there um, on the same channel that the other work is out there, they will both lose. Because yeah. the guy yeah. that is interested in lifestyle experience and in family snapshot is going to have to get rid of my stuff from his own feed. And me, I'm, exactly. I have to get rid of his own stuff. You know? yeah. So we... I don't think we are um, we are there yet. Where uh, this the boom of Instagram probably, um, and now the direction that Instagram is taking on video and so on, is great because it forces us to find a different channel for our work. Absolutely. And so we probably you know we we need to find a way to communicate that. But I, I would say that the the maybe maybe more than too many people is maybe not enough clarity in the way the work is put out there and the photography is treated and photography is approached and so on and so forth. So it's a very complex question. And I think my answer didn't really go to the bottom of it. <laughs> but uh, but... <laughs> To be honest, I don't know that anybody uh, you know, <laughs> will ever get to the bottom of it. Um... No, I think it's a very complex question, but it's the question in a way. You know? I've only got a few more questions for you. One, one is, what would you be if you weren't a photographer? Uh, I will be teaching something probably because the, the next best thing that I love to do is teaching. Fantastic. So I'm yeah. fortunate that I can do the teaching and the photography together, but probably would be teaching something, you know. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Are there any photographers out there that you think uh, I should be talking to on the podcast? Oh, definitely. There are so many. Um, yeah, lately, I've been spending a lot of time in the NFT space. So I'm going to give you a couple of names out of that. If that's sure. okay. Um, one, one is Marco Botticelli. 
Okay. Um, I think I've seen some of his work, yeah. It's, yeah, I think he's a great uh, travel and landscape photographer, and uh, he's actually a person that um, I, I consider him a friend. So I'm privileged enough to consider him a friend, and I love to talk to him about uh, all sorts of stuff. And uh, I think you're going to have uh, a very, very interesting conversation with him as well. Um, Fantastic. Both the work and the, and the, and the behind behind the work, and. Um, uh, and I know, you know, it's, uh, I, I love people that, that do the kind of photography that I do. So I could give you a lot of name, uh, for, for that, but uh, maybe it's going to be a little more boring for you. So that's why I choose Marco because it's, uh, it's, it has a little different, uh, it came to mind because it does a little different kind of photography. I think Fabio Antenna is probably a person that it would be very interesting to talk with. Yep. Um, 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 because uh, I really love what he does and what he did with the uh, with the way that he processes photograph photography. And since it's something very different than what I do, I would, would be very interesting in listening to the podcast. <laughs> so I, I love for you to talk to him because I can I can listen then, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. And um, and I I also like um, guys that do that, that work in the north. Um, so maybe. Christian, Christian Holberg would be another person that uh, that I would uh, love for you to talk to. Um, I don't know, man, but so many. And I, I actually feel bad in giving names because I'm forgetting and not giving so many other that, names. That's fine. I, I only need a couple because my, my list is very long anyway. So. <laughs> but I, I always like to add to it because uh you know it's I, i'm interested in what other people you know what what photographers other people are are aware of and are, are looking at and always looking to to talk to new and interesting people um yep, yep. i've got one more question for you and for some of my Go listeners it's the most important one it. but i know i'm taking a, a real risk asking an, asking an italian this one do you like pineapple on pizza? No, <laughs> sorry. I, I kind of kind of thought I I, I knew what you were going to say there. <laughs> but as again, again, people who like what they like. So who am I to judge, right? <laughs> All right. Well, thank no, you very much for uh, spending some time with me, Vieri. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing some of uh, your story and getting to know you a little better uh where can people find your work um people can find my work on uh, on my website uh i have a website that is called vieribotazzi.com so that's easy to find because my name and surname.com and i have another one called wondrous landscapes where you can find it's a more a portfolio only website sure. and then i have a third website that is Vieri Workshops, where you can find my workshops. Uh, again, it's vieribotacineworkshops.com. And also you can find my work on Instagram, obviously. And um, if people listening to this are into NFT, they can find my my work on Foundation and OpenSea and um, an object as well. So Brilliant. Um, All right. Well, I'll include links to uh, where people can find you uh, in the show notes. So once again, uh, thanks, thanks very much, Vieri.
Uh, no, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a privilege and it's been a lot of fun too. And uh, it's been great talking to you and getting to know you a little better, even though you ask all the questions. So I am <laughs> happy I could sneakily <laughs> get one question in, but we should do this in reverse. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to do it in reverse. And uh, certainly if you're here in uh, Sydney next year and I'm I'm around, uh yeah, get in touch and we can uh, go and have a coffee and something and you, you can grill me. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. You know? No, definitely. It would be great to, to, to actually meet in, the, in real life as well. So I hope we'll manage to do that. And thanks again. Thank you very, very much indeed for inviting me. It's been, it's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne and hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm-hmm.